Good morning. Good morning, church. This is my friend Jenna. Say hi, Jenna. Hello. Say hi to Jenna, church. Thank you. Jenna's going to read some scripture for us this morning. And Mary said, My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. Thanks, Jenna. You can thank Jenna. It's scary to be up here. I asked Jenna to come read that scripture this morning. What she read is Mary's song. Uh, it's this magnification that Mary sings when she conceives Jesus. And I asked Jenna to be here for two reasons. One, because I love Jenna, and you know I love teenagers, and so I wanted a teenager up here with me this morning, so thank you for being brave. But secondly, because Jenna is 15 years old, and history tells us that Jesus' mom was probably around Jenna's age when she sang that song. And so I thought it would be cool for us to have a picture of that in our heads this morning. About 16 years ago, I received a new heart. Uh, Adam and I had not been married very long when I started to not feel good. And so we went through this series of doctor's appointments and blood work and tests as doctors tried to figure out what was going on with me and what's happening in my body and how could they help me. And I got sicker and sicker, and as I did so, I was in and out of the hospital. And when I wasn't in the hospital, I would be at home pretty much just not getting out of bed. And Adam and I were trying to figure out what it looked like to live together in sickness and in health. And I have this memory of him standing over me one morning as he's going to leave for work, and he's holding this piece of toast. He's like, can you just eat this piece of toast today? Twelve hours later, he comes back and he's holding this piece of toast with one tiny little bite taken out of it. And I had slept all day and I don't remember anything about it. But in April of that year, I got a phone call from the doctor um, and she said, you need to come to the hospital right now. And so I called Adam, who was at work, and I called my parents and I think I called my siblings and just to let them know what was going on. And we went to the hospital and I remember feeling anxious and unsettled. I knew that I had this team of people and they were going to do everything they could to make sure that I was okay. And at the same time, I was really aware that there was no guarantee about how this was all going to play out. However, 24 hours after I checked in, on April 24th, 2008, I received a new heart. Now, it's likely not what you're thinking because I didn't have a physical heart transplant. What happened on that day was I gave birth to my son, Kellen. I know, the story isn't where you thought it was going, but it is the story of a heart transplant. Everything I told you is real and true, but it's the story of my pregnancy. I had one of those really challenging ones where my body kind of rebelled itself and I got a disease and I spent seven and a half months trying to keep both myself and the baby inside of me alive. And there came a point where my doctor said, he is no longer safer inside of you, we need to get him out. And so I delivered a very tiny, premature Kellen. And truly, at that moment, I received a new heart. Gone was kind of that colder, harder, 
much more self-focused heart. And in its place was this one with new emotions and new fears and this almost consuming love. I had a mom heart. It's pretty incredible. As one author says, I don't suppose that anything has ever been said or will ever be said that is eloquent enough or expressive enough to articulate the depth of what happens in the heart of a mother. Few things are more powerful than the tears and prayers of a mother. Few things are more tender and loving than a mother's hug or compassionate touch, and few things are as passionate and fierce as a mother's protective instinct. And while my mom heart is a central and informative piece of who I am, you might be wondering, why do we care, Christy? Why are you telling us this? Well, last week, Dale introduced us to this idea of an honest advent, this concept that challenges us to push past the practices of Christmas that so many of us rightfully enjoy and to go excuse me, deeper into the human part of the story. We know the Gospels are rich with Jesus' humanity, right? We see him be hungry, and we see him be thirsty, and he needs rest, and he has grief. Jesus has a friend, and he has parents, and he has a job. And although it's hard for us to remember this, Jesus' humanity on earth started in the very same way that each of ours did, by being born to a mother. And before we go any further, and this part is really important to me, I want to acknowledge that I know that the word mother or mom or motherhood is not a neutral word. I know that each one of us brings our own connotation and our own experiences to this word. For many of us, motherhood is our greatest joy. And our moms were people who cheered us on and who supported us and who were one of our greatest gifts. And for some of us, we desperately want to be moms and we will not or have not gotten the chance For some of us, our relationships with our moms are broken. They may be severed completely or they're disjointed, but there's pain in that. Some of us have lost our moms, whether recently or a long time ago, and we are still raw in the grief that that brings. Some of us just no longer have our kids with us, and we're moms that have lost our kids to death or to someone stepping into our place or mistakes that we've made. And it's so important to me that you know that even as we talk about motherhood and moms this morning, none of that is pushed aside, none of that is forgotten, but it is my hope that by talking about this humanity part of the Advent story that this will bind us together. So would you pray with me this morning? God, thank you so much for this church. Holy Spirit, we just invite you to be here. We know that you are, but would you use my words? Would it be you in me and not my words but yours and would you meet each one of us exactly where we're at and where we need to be met thank you lord for who you are and just the fact that you sent your son to be a part of this earth and we pray this in his name amen well in the canon of scripture after the old testament ends god goes seemingly silent for 400 years we hear nothing from prophets or people chosen to be the voice of god And it must have felt like forever to the Israelite people as they waited to hear from him. But for us, we simply get to flip a page of Scripture to the New Testament. And when we do, the first thing that we see after all this silence is a detailed genealogy of Jesus written in the Gospel of Matthew. Now, Matthew is writing to a Jewish audience, and the Jewish hopes were centered on this promised child, this child that was going to come from the line of David. And so it makes sense 
that Matthew begins by establishing this, this lineage from the line of David and to the line of King David. And so one of the things that's talked about a lot when we read this is that in this time where women were not much more than property, Matthew chose to include five mothers in the family tree of the Messiah. But what I think is more intriguing and much less talked about is that among that long list of names, that genealogy, some are super hard to pronounce. Sorry, guys, I got something in my throat. Some of them are super hard to pronounce, and we really know nothing about them. When it comes to these five women, they're all stories that we do know. Tamar, the woman who fought to receive what was rightfully hers, and in this scandalous tale, if you don't know what I'm talking about, go back and read it, this scandalous tale, she becomes the one responsible for producing an offspring that allows the line of Judah to continue. Rahab, the Jericho prostitute who trades in her safety of her family in order to hide the Israelite spies, and then she later marries an Israelite and has a son named Boaz. Ruth, a widow, but a loyal daughter-in-law who leaves her country, travels with her mother-in-law Naomi, meets Boaz, gets married, and they have a son named Obed, who is the father of Jesse, who becomes the father of King David. Uriah's wife, we better know her as Bathsheba, a woman who is virtually forced to betray her marriage. And that decision ends with a pregnancy, the death of her husband, and the death of that baby. But she later becomes the mom of Solomon. And of course, Mary. All of these mothers, part of the grand story of the coming eternal king. And it seems to me that scripture shows us that from the very beginning, God intended for us to understand that motherhood is foundational to the humanity of Jesus. Like every single one of us here and every single person that has been or will come, Jesus developed in and was birthed from the body of a woman. Like each of us, he grew in that womb and he became a baby and he grew into an adult. And like us, Jesus had a mom. You guys, Jesus had a mom. Okay, I don't, I don't know that we think enough about that because here's the deal. We know who Mary is, but we need to take a minute to think about the fact that Jesus, the covenant-fulfilling, fully God, fully human, messianic king that all the Bible points to and from, had someone in his life with a mama bear instinct for him. Okay? You know that instinct, it's like the... Um, I will do anything for the good and protection of my kids, and if you get in my way, I will destroy you instinct. No, you know it, because if you're a mom, you felt it, and if you're not a mom, you've probably seen it played out and wondered what is wrong with that woman. But Jesus had someone who felt this way about him. Moms have these super strong hearts, right, and they're these vital organs that are filled so fully with love that you think they're going to explode, and also... They are so vulnerable to being broken at any single minute when their kids are hurting or threatened or walking away. And Jesus, the Savior of all creation, had a person in his life who felt this way about him. And so as we take a look at the humanity of Advent, it seems wise to look at the woman he called mom. As I said earlier, Mary's familiar to us. We know who she is, especially as we consider the Advent story. I think we all know the basics. Um, she was an engaged virgin who ended up pregnant. She rode a donkey to Bethlehem. 
gave birth at a someplace that was not a room at the inn, wherever that was, and then she wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger, right? We know that. We think about it, we might be like, oh, I remember her, there was an angel that came to her, or I think she looked for a lost preteen Jesus at some point, or I don't know, she was in the crucifixion account. But I, I think it's safe to say that most of us know something about Mary, but maybe we haven't thought too much about her character, because all of those things are true, but they're events that she happened to be a part of. They don't really dive into who she was. Well, between the four Gospels and the book of Acts, Mary is mentioned over 20 times. And it's enough that if we read through it, we really get to have an idea of who she was, her character, her deep faith in Yahweh, and really how being a mother shaped her. So we're going to look at some of those places, and it's probably no surprise, but we're going to start in Luke chapter 1. And as always, when we jump into scripture, we have to ask ourselves, where are we at in the story? And so like I started with, God had been silent for 400 years until six months ago when the angel Gabriel visited Zechariah and told him that he and his aging wife Elizabeth were going to have a son that was going to be great in the sight of the Lord. And we're going to pick up in Luke 1:26. In the sixth month, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary, and the angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. So Gabriel, the same angel that had visited Zechariah six months earlier, the same angel who had visited Daniel hundreds of years earlier in Babylon, now appears to a virgin teenager who's betrothed to a man in the line of David. And what's the first thing he says to her? When you read it directly from the Greek, it says, greetings favored by grace. Gabriel starts by proclaiming who Mary is. He's speaking directly to her identity. This Greek phrase is used only one time in all of the New Testament, and it's really meant to create this idea of being preferred and being special and being elected. He is telling Mary, your identity, the way that you are recognized in heaven is chosen. Greetings, chosen. Now anyone who has been picked in a PE class knows that being chosen is a good feeling. Um, I don't often post on social media. I mean, I use social media. I like to stalk people on it, but I don't post on it very often. I do, though, on my kids' birthdays. Every year, I post on their birthdays, and I have a rhythm for how I speak to each one of them. And on my youngest son, Jax's birthday, I always post about how I was chosen to be his mom and how he was chosen to be my son and how I will choose to never get over the wonder of that. That has a lot to do with how the Lord wove together mine and Jax's story, and maybe someday I'll share more about that. But my point here is that there is something incredible about being chosen. There's something so filling to know that you have been seen and you've been deemed worthy. It speaks to the deepest parts of us that doubt. Being chosen is a balm that soothes the uncertainty of our soul. And so after declaring her identity, after Gabriel says, you are chosen, he says, the Lord is with you. Basically, you're not alone, right? Gabriel knows the news he's about to deliver is going to be almost impossible to understand. And he also knows that it's going to completely change the trajectory that Mary thought her life was on. And so he's letting her, her know, 
You're not going to have to do this on your own. And then he continues, do not be afraid, Mary, you have found favor with no, do not be afraid. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? An angel has just told Mary that she is going to fulfill the prophecy of Isaiah 7.14, that a virgin will conceive and give birth to a son called Emmanuel. And at this point, I don't think there's any way that Mary could totally understand what he was saying to her, but she knew enough to ask the question, how? And yes, of course, Mary is asking about the logistics of a virgin pregnancy, but I think she's asking something much deeper, and I think this is the first time we get to see her step into motherhood as she wonders, how can this be? How can this be it, that I am enough? Am I enough? And I think it's worth pausing here because this is the age-old question that moms have been asking themselves for years, centuries, whether married or single, whether stay-at-home or working, whether 21st century B.C. or 21st century A.D., the defining question of motherhood is how. How do we be the mom that our kids need? How do we teach them to love God and people with their whole hearts? How do we teach them to be capable and independent and yet also do it alongside a community that they can be vulnerable with and that they serve? How do we keep them innocent and yet be the ones that teach them about the world? How do we expose them to sports and music and other cultures and still teach them the value of rest? How do we keep them safe and let them go? How do we let them get their lives off track and their hearts broken and yet ensure that they know that our love and that God's love is never going away? How do we get them from the dentist appointment to the soccer game and not miss the math test? How do we be a mother and a wife, a mother and an employee, a mother and a sister and a friend and a daughter? How do we feel guilty about not working? How do we feel guilty about working? How do we not lose ourselves? How? How do we give our kids our best and still give our best to everyone else? How? It is the refrain over and over in our mom brains, but the question we're asking is how could we possibly be enough? And I believe it's the question that Mary is asking in the depth of her newly forming mom heart, how can I be enough? And the angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One will be born and be called the Son of God. Gabriel responds to Mary's question with both a logistical and heart answer. The conception is going to take place by the Holy Spirit coming upon her, which in and of itself is incredible. But it's the promise that the Most High will overshadow that brings her the answer that her heart needs to hear. He will overshadow. He will protect. He will hover. She does not have to be enough because he is more than enough. And this answer clearly hits deep within Mary because we see her answer in the most exceptional way. She says this, I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me as you have said. 
for all the uncertainties that lie ahead, the doubts, the questions that are begging to be asked, Mary silences them by choosing her devout belief in her God, Yahweh. She entrusts herself to him, her reputation, her future, and we see her lay down this baby that she's going to have, choosing to accept something that has never happened before. We've all faced this choice. Do I believe and accept that God Almighty is greater than my doubts, my uncertainties, my inadequacies, the things I wonder about? Do I believe that he's more than enough? Mary comprehended that with faithful obedience and humble submission, that was the antidote for silencing the whirlwind of things that was happening in her. We get to do that same thing when we choose to believe what Mary did, that God is with us, and that he is always more than enough. As the angel leaves Mary, she decides to go visit her aging cousin Elizabeth. And we don't hear much about their relationship, but I wonder about it. We talked about this earlier, but history tells us that Mary was probably around the age of 15 and Elizabeth was probably in her mid-50s. And so with this 40-year age gap, it feels like Elizabeth may have been more of a mentor or mom figure to Mary than a peer or a friend. And I don't know what makes Mary decide to go visit, but she does, and it's important to the story because when she gets to Elizabeth's house, something remarkable happens. We pick it up again in Luke 1:41. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leapt in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. In a loud voice, she exclaimed, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you will bear. But why am I so favored that this mother of my Lord should come to me? As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, and the baby in my womb leapt for joy, blessed is she who has believed what the Lord has accomplished. Elizabeth is filled with the Holy Spirit at this moment, and through him, she understands what's happening. She knows that the baby inside Mary is just as holy and divine as their heavenly father, God above. And she speaks that out loud. And then she tells Mary, I believe you. I think it's important to pause here as well because Elizabeth is also in the process of getting her new mom heart. And we see this picture of a woman who is completely in tune with the baby that is still inside of her. We've all heard the phrase, moms have eyes in the back of their heads, and honestly, we kind of do. But what we mean when we say that is that somehow, moms always know what's going on. It's incredible, and it comes from being so deeply aware of and in tune to what's happening in the lives of our kids or the emotions that they're feeling. And so the Holy Spirit uses this moment in an incredibly powerful way. As Elizabeth affirms to Mary that she believes her, as she affirms the truth of what's happening, it unlocks something in Mary that could not be unlocked before and allows Mary to step into this new role. And I think the reason this is so important is for two reasons. One, as moms, it is so powerful when we reinforce truth in one another. If Mary, the woman who God chose to bear his son, needed to hear truth, I think it's safe to say that it will be helpful for us as two. And so having mom speak truth to us and over us and for us, especially when we're wondering or doubting or flailing, it can unlock things in us that sometimes we can't unlock on our own. And then beyond moms, this is a universal truth of the body of Christ. When we look at each other and say out loud, I believe you, 
I believe in you. I see what God is doing. God uses his spirit in us to reinforce the truth of who we are in him with one another. And when we let the Holy Spirit use us to remind each other, we get to use the words that he actually gives us to encourage and exhort and to spur one another on, to press us on to what he's calling us to. And that is exactly what we see happen with Mary in this moment. Praise begins to pour out of her. We read this at the beginning. This is the prose that Jenna read. And it's this message of magnification. Mary talks. She acknowledges that God is always working and she praises him for that. And as she sings, she demonstrates her humility by acknowledging her lowly status, but also that God has chosen to exalt her. She illustrates her her dependence on God by calling out his mercy, not just for her, but for the generations before her and the ones that will come and the grace that will continue. She is saying that his power will overshadow and hover and protect. She is proclaiming that God is more than enough. It's incredible, really. And actually, it's the last time that we get to hear or read anything extended from Mary. Because from here, her story and the life she lives really only comes to us in a couple sentences at a time at various points in Jesus' life. And that makes sense because Mary should fade into the background. The story is about Jesus. But I think it's these additional glimpses we get of her that really allow us to see her in the place of her greatest humanity. And that's as a mom. And so in our remaining time, we're going to just look at a few more of the spaces that we encounter her briefly. The next time we see her, she's giving birth to Jesus in Luke 2. And we don't get many details, but childbirth hasn't really changed since the fall of man. Um, So we can assume that it was physically painful and emotionally taxing. And as she recovers from childbirth, shepherds come. And they come to praise her baby and proclaim that he is the savior of the world. And among what we can assume was a myriad of high emotion and physical exhaustion. Scripture gives us this peek into this new mom's heart. Luke 2.19 says, But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. To say it differently, Mary had now completed her own heart transplant to being a mom. And as she heard these amazing things about her child, she observed and she stored and she kept them intensely deep within her, safe, so that she could think about them later in the deepest places of her soul. And it's not the only time in scripture that we see her do this. In fact, we see similar language in two other places. One, when she's presenting Jesus in the temple at eight days old. And then again, when he's 12 years old and lost on their family's annual trip to Jerusalem. And each of those times, we see that Mary marveled with wonder and treasured in her heart the way that people were responding to her son. This is such a marker of motherhood. This idea of seeing the good in our kids, of the beauty in our child. And even though Mary doesn't fully comprehend what's happening, in the depth of her motherhood, she instinctively knows to store these moments, to see the beauty of her child. It's part of the reason why as moms we take so many pictures and we create so many memories and we trade places with our kids when they're hurting or we want their happiness more than our own, and sometimes why we physically feel the effect of our love. 
our hearts, those ones we talked about earlier that are strong but perpetually on the edge of breaking because of the intensity of our love for our kids, our hearts store up these moments. And when we ache from all of the things that the world throws at them, and trust me, we ache if they are babies or kiddos or teenagers or adult kids. When we ache at those things, we get to return to those treasures that we've stored up. And we think about those things and it reminds us that God is with our kids and that he is more than enough. And impossibly, that he loves him more than we do. There's a few other points along the way where we get to see Mary in her role as a mom. We see her as an anxious mom in Luke. When Jesus is lost as a preteen, like we just talked about, and when he's an adult causing a major stir in town. And from our side of history, we know that Mary didn't really get everything that was going on, but she did want what was best for her child. And she wanted to protect him and to raise him well and to be the very most he could be. We see her as a mom telling her kid what to do when she tells Jesus to fix the wine problem at the wedding in Cana. And initially he's like, Mom, it's not my time, chill. Let's be honest, he does do his first miracle at the direction of his mother, demonstrating the attitude that mothers before and after know mothers know best when it comes to their kids. And then we see her in several places sacrifice as a mom. When she accepts the Lord's plan for her life, she willingly enters into a lifetime of being misunderstood. She sacrifices her reputation knowing that she'll be ostracized for having a baby outside of wedlock. And then we see her sacrifice self and familiarity when she and her new husband take their new baby and leave their home to flee to Egypt to protect that baby. We see her sacrifice comfort when she chooses to stay in Egypt knowing that all of her friends and family back home are watching their little baby boys be mercilessly killed. I think we can even imply the sacrifice it must have been for her to face her own sin and shortcoming as a mom as she raised a literally perfect child. That question of how can I possibly be enough never went away. Scripture also tells us that Jesus grew in wisdom, with stature, and with God, and with man. And this certainly included his mom. I think Mary probably experienced the phenomenon that we as moms do, which is, I don't think I could possibly love my child anymore. And then time goes on, and my love is even bigger. But this love comes with a price, and it's one that Mary knows as well. When Jesus was presented at the temple, Simeon, a righteous man who was filled with the Holy Spirit, is prophesying over him. And he looks at Mary and he says, Your son will cause the falling and rising of many in Israel, but a sword will pierce your soul as well. And there's probably no more acute description of motherhood than to understand that our very souls will be pierced. It's inevitable. And it truly, truly is the great equalizer of being a mom. And Mary was no different. She watched her son be despised and accused, beaten and eventually killed. And then in our very final meeting with Mary in Acts 1, though her son is now raised, both by her and actually literally from the grave, and her motherhood duties are complete, she remains faithfully believing in him, surrounded by those who love him, praying for him, and waiting, as moms do, for her son to return. 
I said this at the beginning, but there are very few things that allow us to connect to the humanity of Advent more than exploring the fact that Jesus had a mom. It's something that he has in common with every single one of us in this room. But here's what we should remember. Mary was a normal person. She was just like many believers in a lot of ways. True, an extraordinary thing happened to her. She was hand-selected by the God of the universe to bear and raise his son. But that's not the essential thing for her eternally. Mary is not sinless. She's not a redeemer. She does not dispense grace. She's not fully God and fully human like her son. But at her very core, she saw the certainty of who God was, and she believed that his word was true and that he would fulfill his promises. She chose to believe that he was more than enough, and that is our truth too. Because maybe that question of am I enough manifests itself differently in you. Maybe you find yourself striving to achieve or for perfection, or maybe you're always trying to stay a step ahead so that no one knows that you're not a step ahead. Perhaps you choose nonchalance so that no one can know that you're doubting or grasping, or maybe you push towards fun so you don't have to navigate the pain. Maybe you let fear and insecurity run rampant in your head, or maybe you never show people who you really are so that you can't be rejected fully. Or maybe you're just the person who helps everyone around you so that you never need help. I don't know what it is for each one of us sitting here, but I do know that it's in us. It's in every one of us, that question of do I have what it takes? Am I worthy? Am I enough? And God, in his loving kindness, answers this question to us over and over again, but we have to listen closely to see what he's saying. In Genesis 17, he introduces himself as El Shaddai, the all-sufficient one. In Psalm 23, he proclaims that he is our shepherd, declaring that we will want for nothing. We read in 2 Corinthians 9 that he is able to bless us abundantly, and Colossians 1 tells us that he created all things and all things are held together in him. And Ephesians 3 promises that he can do more than we can even ask. And I can go on, but the truth that we return to, the loving, gentle answer that our Father gives us to our question of are we enough is no. No, you're not enough. But here's the thing. There's a second part to this answer that we can't miss, and we just saw it in each of those scriptures. God says to us, no, you're not enough, but you do not have to be because I am. God tells us, I never intended for you to be enough. I didn't create you that way. That was not my plan. In fact, that feeling of wondering if you are enough, that comes from me as my reminder to you that you do not have to be all the things or fix all the things or control all the things. I've made it impossible for you to be enough because I am more than enough. And what that means is that all the fear and the striving and the perfectionism and the wondering and the grasping and the hiding and the pretending, the avoiding, it can all be brought to the very feet of Jesus and left there. And in return, we get to take up the knowledge that his grace is sufficient, that his power is made perfect in weakness, and that through the humanity of a teenage mom, God revealed himself as our all-sufficient shepherd, 
the one who is always, always more than enough. That is the honesty of Advent. 